This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and, of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Mandy Manners. She is an ICF-accredited recovery coach, a public speaker, an author of two books, and a coach trainer for the Coaching Academy. She's also a good friend of mine, and we were both part of the Sober Sessions that was a regular online platform to help people during lockdown. I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I love recording it. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Good morning, Mandy. Welcome to One for the Road. We were just talking before uh, we started this, weren't we, about the last time we met, and I think it was before lockdown, wasn't it? Where's that gone? I know, um, at your lovely event. And um, yeah, it was like you were there, William Porter was there, and and Simon Chapel, you know, and Emily. And yeah, it was lovely to be with everyone, but it seems like a really long time ago. Yeah, it does. And I think I was about a year sober then, and and uh, I'm four and a half years. How wow. far are you now? Yeah, that's gone and all, isn't it? <laughs> um, I'll be six years on the 17th of August. So, Fantastic. Yeah. You've done so much, which we're going to talk about a little bit later on. But as per usual, I'm nosy. My listeners are nosy. <laughs> so we'd all love to know about your story, where it all began. Um, yeah, okay. Well, I've done a lot of therapy, so I'll try not to get into <laughs> <laughs> the deep depths of, of every incident um but um I so my relationship with alcohol started very young um my parents kind of did the whole um self-sufficiency thing in the kind of sort of 70s 80s and so we had like we lived in the middle of nowhere and we had a goat and some chickens and I know it was amazing like I was a really free child at that point um but they used to make their own wine um and so one of the sort of processes of of making wine is you decanter it from one bottle to another um and for some reason i was allowed to do the siphoning from one to the other and i absolutely loved it straight away i was just like loved the feeling loved the taste felt really sort of special because I got to do this little thing and I got to sip it and my dad would always be like that's enough mandy and i'm like <laughs> trying to suck the wine in um so how old were you then um like six. Oh my god because yeah my mum and dad used to do the same and you had that siphon tube didn't you yes that's it the plastic tube yeah, yeah. yeah and it was like my little treat so um you know mum and dad drank but not sort of to a level that was you know any more than any sort of regular sort of British family really um I always sort of struggled with how it changed people I really didn't like it you know I always remember at kind of Christmas or birthdays people would get a bit silly and I you know would it would freak me out so I was definitely you know a really sensitive child 
Um, I used to, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess sort of looking now, I realise that both my parents had kind of trauma and so there was intergenerational kind of stuff that maybe meant that they were trying to create a family that was very perfect because their lives hadn't been very easy and they loved us intensely and still do. Um, but perhaps I didn't know my own self because of that and played roles to try and kind of make sure that they were okay. Um, so. I mean, I used to tell loads of lies when I was little, you know, I'd like was really kind of inventive with the truth and just wanted everything to be bigger and more magical. And um, so I think, yeah, from very young, I didn't have a true sort of sense of self or, you know, I put myself aside um, to try and be something better than I than I was. Um, and then kind of, yeah, sort of end of primary school so we moved from Suffolk to Gloucestershire when I was eight um, and so the new primary school again I was like trying to you know find myself um, was always attracted to people whose lives were a bit you know difficult or you know broken homes very much the fixer and wanted to like make everybody okay um, and I had a couple of friends at the end of primary school. So when we were like 11, 12, we used to like, you know, drink out of the cabinet of uh, their mum's house. Their mum was always out, you know. Um, and yeah, it was just really quite sort of naughty and unboundaried and like just sort of trying to experiment really with with life. And um, and then through secondary school, I mean, I started smoking weed when I was like, yeah, first year, second year quickly moved on to sort of recreational drugs by the age of like 14, 15. Um, where I grew up is a very sort of druggy town, so it's really easy to access. Um, one of my best friend's brother was a dealer. I went out with a drug dealer, you know. Um, and yeah, I mean, we were just, it was the 90s. We were very into festivals, sort of, you know, going to festivals, free parties, raves, you know, I mean, loads of dangerous stuff like I think back now, you know, I, I mean, I went to a party in the Forest of Dean and I, you know, was in the boot of someone's car, you know, <laughs> just like, um, yeah, but um, I mean, there was now I kind of with a sort of therapeutic coach head on, I can understand that actually a lot of the stuff we were doing at that time was actually quite good. You know, it's like there was a lot of sort of trauma, like a lot of my friends had difficult home lives and there was something about kind of real connection at those times you know dancing together listening to music you know repetitive beats all of those things are actually very good for our nervous system and really really kind of connected and bonded um and yeah so I'm going to talk a little bit sort of trigger warning if anyone's listening um, I'm going to talk a little bit about sexual assault so if that is something you don't want to listen to right now please feel free to <laughs> to pause or move on um so I went traveling when I was um 18 so a friend and I we 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 went we decided to go to Mexico and then I was going to meet up with a mate who was sort of doing her gap year in Fiji and we were going to do uh, Australia and Nepal and Thailand together um and we were sort of sat on the plane reading the the guidebook and it was like Mexico City is the most dangerous city in the world. And we're just like, oh, you know, we're just so sort of naive, really. And yeah, so we sort of traveled around very, very heavy drinking. Um, I think looking back, I had I, I think I'm I don't think I cared about myself very much. You know, even before anything happened, I think I just didn't I just didn't have that strong sense of self or boundaries or kind of self-protection. Um, so, yeah, we we went out one night and we were in um, Tulum, which is um, sort of beautiful paradisiac area of Mexico. Um, and whether my drink was spiked or not, I mean, the, all the sort of details are still quite because um, I disassociated you know the details are quite um, fluid um, but you know I woke up and I woke up and I was being attacked and I it, I think it's important to talk about disassociation because a lot of people that have had you know rape or sexual violence have a question in their heads for a very long time like did it happen like is it true um, and it was only sort of 
15 years later when I was in therapy, they were like, the fact that you felt like you were watching it from above is disassociation. This is what happens. You know, it's a, it's a survival mechanism. So you don't die of a heart attack, essentially, you know, you, you, you remove yourself from that pain. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. So I kind of was left with all these questions, you know, they, I think, you know, I, whatever happened happened over that night and you know eventually sort of I remember sort of pushing the the bed against the because we we're in a little sort of beach hut you know on the beach um pushing the bed against the the door and like locking myself and my friend uh, in and she was kind of passed out on the bed and you know there was a group of men um and the next day I said to my best mate who was there like I never want to talk to the, about this again like I never want to speak about this again and bless her she didn't for like 10 years um but that internalization of that trauma um left me very very um yeah unwell you know um so from that point on um my drinking got pretty erratic uh and drug taking as well lots of kind of uh unhealthy relationships with men lots of kind of putting myself in dangerous positions and my drinking really shifted and this I know we're going to mention the book that Kate and I wrote at the end but my drinking really shifted when I became a mum um so you know I eventually kind of through thank you know whatever I met my now husband when I was 22 um and um started to slowly kind of build a, a relationship with someone which felt safe um and he's french so we decided to move to france um and decided to have a baby and when i had my daughter it just triggered so much of so much fear you know fear how can i keep her safe how can i um make sure bad stuff doesn't happen to her how can I you know hold this person and and protect her um and that's kind of when you know I was lonely I was in another country um I yeah was in a constant state of fear that alcohol really became my best friend you know of just like that sort of nightly drink of just and that feeling of like oh, okay yeah I can cope. And all of this is in retrospect, right? At the time, I had no idea. I just was like, yeah, I'm doing what everyone else is doing. And, you know, like everyone drinks and and stuff like that. But now I know that it was very much kind of my lifeline, really, that kind of, you know, kept me going. Um, and then I had my son. And again, I really didn't cope very well having two kids. You know, they're 19 months apart. Um I really didn't understand how I just was so hard on myself. You know, it was like, I'm not good enough at this. I don't know how I'm supposed to love two of them. I do think I probably had postnatal depression after him. Um, and then I went back to work because I was like, okay, sense of self, what does that, you know, look like? Um, and so I was quite young. I had my daughter when I was 26 and my son 28. Um, so I went back to work uh, in a university as a language teacher um and all of a sudden I was um you know seen and liked again you know and it felt amazing you know I was this young cool teacher um I had lots of English colleagues um and you know we'd go to the bar every night um you know after work and I just completely split in two it was like okay you know being a mum is very difficult this is something I'm succeeding in let's stay in this space um and we lived in Lille, which is in the north of France. And like Belgian beer is really, really, really strong. Um, so, you know, you'd go to the bar after work, just like, oh, I'll just have one. Now I'll just have another. And then I'd like stumble back, you know, to pick up the kids. Um, and I, you know, I, I look back now and this is when we sort of talk about white privilege and and privilege of being, you know, a middle class woman. You know, I would come in my suit, you know, with my heels on because I worked in a business school, you know, stinking of booze. And they'd let me take the kids, you know, and I just wonder what that would have looked like if I was any if I looked any different. Um, I have a lot of shame around this period of my life, but I've, you know, worked a lot to overcome it. Um 
yeah and then I just sort of get the kids home I get them fed I'd been working all day on my feet teaching you know performing for everybody um my husband worked away a lot so I was often on my own and then um you know I'd, I I wouldn't be eating carbs because you know I was always on a diet you know um and I'd put the kids to bed and then I'd sink into the you know into my favorite chair with a bottle of red wine and and drink the the whole lot and pass out and that would that was that really and that's kind of how it was for about probably about two years where it was really really kind of problematic in the sense of how much I was drinking and the shame and the kind of repetitive behavior and I won't do it you know and then you know counting units and doing all those things about right I'm not going to drink on Tuesdays Wednesdays Thursdays and and doing that you know repetitively and then I want it was because also you know I was quite young so a lot of my friends were sort of having their 30th they were all single and kind of still doing the things we used to do um, so we had a couple of Hindus and um, a couple of festivals over a summer. Um, and at the end of the summer, I was just like, right, that's it. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not drinking, I'm not smoking, I'm not doing any drugs. That's it. I'm, you know, I'm going to really look after myself. Um, and looking back now, I realized that actually I went into withdrawal. I had no idea of all those things. Um you know, I was sweating, like I was hallucinating. Um, luckily, my husband was there and he was just like, you know, this is not kind of OK. Um, and I'd had quite a lot of, you know, suicidal ideation at that point. You know, I was very low, like, you know, my diary is just like, I hate myself. Why do I keep doing this? What's wrong with me? I'm such a bad mom. You know, I'm such a bad person, all of those things. Um, and so my husband was like look you know let's let's take you to the the doctor um and I couldn't speak my French was okay but not that great so I wrote down everything that I was feeling um you know bless my husband and he came with me to the doctor and explained you know my head state at that time you know and and that doctor was really a a, a gift um you know he was just a brilliant man he was a cbt therapist he was an alcohol um addiction specialist and he was a pediatrician um and he was like a holistic he was just this amazing kind of guy um and he so i started going to see him twice a week um at the beginning he put me on antidepressants we never talked about my drinking but it was all around kind of trauma and around my relationship with the kids, I had a lot of rage because I was so frightened all the time and so hypervigilant. I just like burst. Um, and so we worked a lot on that. And it was only kind of a year into that that I sort of thought, right, you know, I'm a lot better, but drinking is still an issue for me. Um, and so I started Googling, you know, thank goodness for the internet. I started Googling, um, am I an alcoholic you know do I have a problematic what what you know drinking doing all those scaling things um and I found Lucy Rockers she'd done an interview on um I think it was this morning around Christmas um and she she's the founder of Soberistas and I think it was on the 27th of December like 2000 I'm never good with dates but 2012 I think it was and that was the first message that I wrote was just like hi you know I'm new just found the site I think my drinking might be problematic um and just got this flurry of support which was amazing and then you know I I couldn't quit straight away um I did like a little bits and bobs and then I managed to sort of really kind of get it I think it was in February 2013 um and then I had an amazing year you know I quit my job we decided to move to the seaside get out of the city um you know all of the I ran a half marathon like all of these things were kind of amazing you know I, I recognize now that like I had this narrative that if I could fix myself then I should drink like a normal person um, you know, and it was important for me to to model that for my children. Um, everyone drinks. Um, this is something I should do. Um, 
so after a year, you know, it was like, okay, I'm I'm fixed, I'm better. Look, yeah, brilliant. Everything's good. Um, and so I started drinking again. We'd moved here, we'd moved to the seat. I didn't know anyone, new people, you know, how how can I present myself as a person who doesn't drink? Do you know what's interesting there though, Mandy, is um is what I pick up on there throughout this whole story you've told, right? It's quite clear that alcohol was a coping mechanism for you on every level, right? And then you have a year out of it and then you romanticize it to the point that you think, you know, you could drink like normal people. And that happens so often, doesn't it? We actually forget all, all the symptoms of our hangovers, our mental health, everything is so common. Yeah. And I think that's kind of certainly like when Kate and I met and, you know, we started the podcast together, the Love Sober podcast, it was very much that joint experience that both of us had, you know, been sober for a year and then we started drinking again. And that whole podcast really was about us dismantling what that was about and why it happened and what we could do to kind of prevent it happening again. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it, as you say, it's very, very common but there was this internal belief that that alcohol wasn't the problem. It was me, you know. Um, and actually, when you really see, you know, and I mean, it took me another three years until I managed to, like, completely quit. Um, I do, like, three months on, three months off. Uh, you know, I had these rules around my head that, like, you know, if I woke up at four in the morning, that's it. You know, I'll stop again. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't make it stick. Um, and it was only when I read Annie Grace's book. So that was, yeah, another three years later and lots of like different things along the way that I was just like, okay, it's alcohol. It's not me. This is never going to change. Right. Um, and the only thing that I can do is just never do it again. Mm. Um, and you know, I was a smoker. So, quitting smoke I mean I stopped smoking then I started smoking again so having to stop smoking and interestingly when I look through all my diaries a lot of it is about smoking not drinking it's just like oh I can't believe you know how can I stop smoking kind of thing um so I had that kind of muscle memory to know that it's just like as long as not one cigarette you know passes my mouth I'm good and then it's the same with with alcohol so yeah so it took another three years um of going backwards and forwards and and it culminated we were in we were on holiday in in Spain um and we'd been away for 3 weeks and it like many people you know my I'd be okay you know I do dry January and then I'd fall off the wagon around mid February or whatever and then I'd be okay to like June um and then the summer holidays would be a car crash and then I'd kind of quit again in September through to like December and then Christmas. There was no way I couldn't, you know, and then so the cycle would go round. That was pretty much it. Um, and yeah, and we were just sat, we were sat by the pool. The kids were quite young. You know, I'd never let them go in the pool on their own, but they'd been really good. So we're like, hey, it's fine, you know. And um, so my husband and I sat down like, I think we could just have a glass of wine. They're, they're fine. Um and my son jumped in the pool and he hit his head on the like metal sort of cover of the swimming pool. So my husband jumped in, pulled him up, like blood everywhere. He's fine. He just like cut his his eyebrow. But we had to go, you know, to A&E in Spanish. And it was all quite, you know, complicated. Um, and I just and my husband said to me in the car, because I literally had a glass of wine in my hand. And he was like, oh, thank goodness we didn't have a drink. And that was it. I was just like, I'd taken so many chances and so many like little like, oh, you know, sort of put going to a party and, and you know, right, I'm only going to have one or two. And then, you know, being mm. blackout drunk and just mm. being like waking up in the morning going, oh, OK, thank goodness nothing bad happened, you know. Um, and so that was it, really. And and. I read Annie Grace's, I think I read like two chapters of her book and that was enough because I'd had so much sort of time in the, in the background. And then I started my Instagram account and just started making friends and then make friends with some people in America. And they were like my kind of sober sisterhood at the beginning. They were all members of sort of the unruffled and she recovers and different kind of 
um, yeah, sort of support groups in the States. Um, and then, yeah, and then we started the podcast and kind of that was a real lifeline really for both Kate and I just, you know, I mean, as for you too, right? It's like to be in this really yeah. helps <laughs> with accountability. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And we've all got a different story. You know, mm. like um, we started up the sober sessions, didn't we? In yes. lockdown and that. And it was like, I've spoken about it before, like blankety blank. We was all sitting there on the screen. But <laughs> yeah. I think it even helped us, you know, yeah. having that connection because we we're all going for our own thing doing that. And all I was seeing online was um, that, that new thing, house party, everyone sitting there getting drunk yeah. at lunchtime because the weather was incredible in March. Mm. Um, all these reels popping up and, you know, um, and I was a year sober then. And in fact, all I ever thought about was, thank God I'm not drinking mm. because the amount I was drinking, it would have been a complete nightmare to get that in the house. Yeah. But yeah. then to be drinking in the day, every yeah. single day. So I was so grateful. It didn't actually trigger me at all. I was so relieved. Yeah. And I think that's like something I talk with clients about and, you know, and something that's very important to me is that sort of daily, you know, or every couple of days that just connecting those little moments in life that work out better to the fact that you're sober. You know, like the other night, my daughter, she's nearly 17. You know, she's got her exams. She came in the night before the exams about 11 and she was really upset really worried you know and it's those moments it's like little things but mm. you capture those and go oh my god you know, I'm so glad I wasn't drinking tonight because I wouldn't have been able to hold space for her oh, I wouldn't, you wouldn't be you know, present would you? no but um, when you stopped drinking did stuff come up then from your past traumas and how did you deal with that yeah um well I actually when we moved here I got we had a house that had lots of wooden floors and they used to creak at night and I don't some something happened with me and I got really kind of um obsessed with checking the locks so I'd I'd just be falling asleep and then I'd bolt wake up and I'd go down and check all the locks um and that was making me very very ill so you know now obviously I'd start drinking again (laughs) as well um but I got very unwell and I wasn't working I'd taken a two-year sabbatical from work so I was just in this new place didn't know anyone um, and on my own with my thoughts a lot Um, and I ended up getting referred to a psychiatric unit and I got put on some pretty heavy drugs um, and I didn't really didn't like those Um, but at least I was sleeping because at one point I like literally was sleeping like one or two hours a night Um, And it was there within that unit that they kind of, I first got diagnosed with complex PTSD, you know, so after sort of 15 years. Um, And that was a very big part of the the healing process really was like working with therapists. Um, You know, I'd never told my parents, I'd never told anyone, I'd literally just sealed that at the time. I mean, it's still ongoing work, like I'm doing EMDR at the moment, I'm, you know, working with a a trauma therapist and it will be a long process um I did quite a lot of training in trauma myself as as a practitioner so you know I'm a trauma-informed practitioner and that's very important to me um because so much of the healing is as you said you know alcohol was a coping mechanism so it's like well how can we look after ourselves without it um you know so the nervous system you know what's going on in the body looking after ourselves in that way is you know an integral part of kind of getting sober and staying sober really um yeah so it's been a journey and it's an ongoing journey you know mm. um but like I wouldn't change it and I mean yeah we were saying before we started last year was a very difficult year for me and it's probably the year where you know not like I never want to drink but there were moments where I like wanted to disappear you know there's no there's no way that I could like pretend to you know oh I'm just gonna moderate my drinking it's all fine like Mm. I'm I'm definitely too out there with accountability on that but there were certain moments where I was like I want to disappear from my thoughts um but yeah it's about getting support you know and it's about 
um, taking things off the list like rest you know I've slept so much this last year and allowing myself to kind of do that and as we were saying make things just really simple um, remove people that don't necessarily you know help us to feel well um, but you know there's so much brilliant stuff about being sober you know the relationship I have with my kids is amazing um, my husband my husband drinks but we've come to an understanding around that and he's evolved a lot with that um the work that I get to do the people that I know like I have such amazing friendships in sobriety you know just the way that I see the world the way that I feel about the world I I really hear you there I mean when you talk about the nervous system I learned about that in my training with Jolene Park you know about how to manage your nervous system right and it's not just about boredom it's about generally how you feel yeah. and and you know like i look at it like the traffic light system of green amber red and if i'm in amber i think right i need to really start to do something here because i can feel it building Ooh, you know that. my yeah. anxiety and mm. of course what we used to do when we drank is just immediately think oh i know what i I do resolve that right. And it's interesting what you said earlier at the beginning. You said, you know, alcohol was my best friend. Mm-hmm. That was the narrative we told ourselves back then yeah. because it would fix everything, wouldn't it? Yeah. It'd be like, do you know, I'm really, really anxious. I'm really stressed. I've had a terrible day. I've had a good day. I've had some bad news versus some good news. And it's immediately. But when you come out of it, you realise it's actually your complete enemy. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I've worked hard on how I deal with life. I've also had uh, a very difficult time and not once like yourself have I thought I need a drink, mm. but I have thought I need to do something to turn this volume down. Yeah. Mm. And you're probably, well, I know for a fact um, you're like me, a highly sensitive person and that overthinking can drive you mad as well. And yeah. that is another reason why I drank to stop that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I sort of um, visualise it like walking in from work and there's the radio on with a song I absolutely hate and someone's turned it up and alcohol used to just turn it down. But what I didn't realise was that two, three hours later when you're drunk, <laughs> the volume goes up again. Then you wake up three o'clock in the morning. It's like, I can't stand it. Yeah. You know? And people really need to see the truth about their drinking, I think, because what – what you did, what I've done, what hundreds of others, thousands, in fact, is romanticise it. Because, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. It is absolutely wherever you go, wherever you look, I there's billboards and supermarkets on the railings outside. You're in the road in traffic and it's 25% off six bottles of wine. Yeah. Cases of beer, 20% off if you buy. You know, um, it's difficult when you talk to your friends and they want to kind of enable you to justify their own drinking. It is so difficult, but I think what happened with you, you tried and you learned from each go and you persevered. And I spoke to someone on this podcast. It's not out yet, but she tried for 10 years and she finally got it right. And it's so important to say to people that if you try then it doesn't work this time. Brush yourself down. Learn why you did that and move on. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, 100%. And like, you can't unlearn how good sobriety feels too. So it's like, once I'd done it once, it was like I had that memory. So no matter how much I tried to modify or change or moderate or, you know, put different ro- rules around drinking, I still knew that there was another way. You know, and so, I mean, and and thank goodness, right, that that like we have that imprint um, once we've sort of had a taste, you know, it it never goes away. And to your point around kind of marketing, I mean, that was a huge part of my journey because, you know, there was that kind of moment with social media where, you know, Instagram had started and it was all these like, you know, beautiful perfect mums you know this is what life looks like you know Bowden-esque like everyone looks beautiful and they're like you know and everything's really easy and these kind of mum fluencers or whatever um, you know and you've got all these mums at home really lonely really struggling and then all of a sudden there was a kind of backlash to that and it was you know 
the imperfect mums and like you know washing everywhere and it was humorous uh, but a big part of that was drinking it was like you know and we have gin o'clock wine o'clock yeah. you know and there was a real camaraderie about that it was just like oh I feel let alone it's like all these other women are struggling trying to be like the best you know have a job right we're emancipated women now brilliant feminism you know we can we can work but there's no support for us to actually be able to do these two things at the same time Mm -hmm. and I had that thing of like I have to I have to go out to work like you know my my dad's a socialist you know I've had a very sort of strong political upbringing of like you know equality so I was like right this is it you know I'm gonna be you know I'm a feminist I'm gonna have a really good job and I'm gonna be a mum you know and I'm gonna show them all you know but there was no you know someone had to pick up the kids you know and so then you're running from all these things and then there was this kind of yeah this kind of community online where it's just like yeah it's really hard we're doing it but it's really hard and you know cheers let's have a gin and tonic at the end of the day um you know, and I don't, you know, blame any of those women that were sort of portraying that. You know, I was doing that too. I've got photos of me like cheersing with a you know, glass of wine at the end of the day um, because we felt less alone. But what you weren't seeing is what happened next. You know, some of those people were just having one glass of wine and going to bed. But many of us were finishing the bottle and, you know, in complete shame and, you know, knowing that it was a problem and not knowing what to do about it um and that's still prevailing now you know there's so many cards so many memes about you know mummy wine time um it's become you know and and also promoted as a coping strategy you know that you see these kind of cards where it's like you know bad day very bad day really bad day and it's the amount of wine to drink you know um so yeah all that kind of environmental context had a huge part as well you know and sort of growing up in the 90s where it was like you know tfi friday and you know the words and kind of festival ladette culture like it was very much part of that in a way you know it's like right yeah we can drink like the lads that was it you know i was really proud because i could drink you know three pints of guinness and port with the lads um not not knowing that kind of women's bodies don't process alcohol in the same way and and on all the other sides of of how it wasn't for me right and again it's like I'm it's not about anybody else it's about what's going on for you and for me someone that had you know complex trauma someone that had a low self-esteem low sense of self-worth it wasn't a helpful drug for me no um yeah and what I've seen as well is the incredible feeling of overwhelmment as well yeah you know, like you say, working mums. I, I had Janie Holiday on my podcast and we went through the decades and it was identical to what you've just said and like sex in the city and, yeah. you know, this this constant promotion of drinking as the thing you do, but it's the thing you do to cope. Yeah. But they portray it in a good way, you know. And as you said, I mean, I was in the carpet game for 40 years and quite often at half three, quarter four, uh, the mummies would arrive back and you'd hear the pop of the Prosecco. And um, I'd think back then, I wonder how many go home, have a cup of tea, do bath time, read stories. And I wonder how many carry on drinking yeah. and then don't mention it the next day. And then you're then living in that shame and regret constantly, aren't you? And that's now I do the job I do. Quite often women that do present themselves immaculately to the world are in bits, you know, yeah. because and especially off the back of lockdown as well. Yeah, lockdown was was hugely impactful. But yeah, for many people, you know, for many clients that I had who were doing well, that, you know, things kind of unraveled or people that, you know, hadn't that it pushed them over the edge to, you know, a level of drinking which was, you know, hugely problematic. I was very lucky. I mean, I, I also think you know especially in the UK it was so badly managed like in France we had very very strict rules um so you just knew what you were doing you just didn't you couldn't go out and that was it and you know whereas sort of seeing what was going on in the UK and especially again for parents this you know suddenly they had to be you know the teacher at home as well as the you know working you know remotely etc whereas in France we 
it was very much like do what you can don't worry about it you know if they do an hour's work a day that's fine you're not a teacher we respect that um but my friends at home were yeah really sort of really stressed out it was a homeschooling was just terrible yeah you know the stress and you know especially with people with two or three kids all arguing all doing different things and you know no wonder by two o'clock you're reaching for the wine, yeah. you know, and then sitting in the garden in a bikini or your swim trunks thinking, well, do you know what? I've done my best. And and the trouble is, is when we started coming out of lockdown and people started going back to work, they were getting cravings at times. I never used to get them. Yeah. Uh, and I've said before, you know, like I've heard of people blowing their mug, pretending it's tea when it's wine, you know, like, God, that's hot. And it's actually a cold glass of Sauvignon Blanc or something, you know. And um, But do you see things changing at all in your line of work? Do you, do you see? Because it's a huge industry now of alcohol-free drinks and, you know, there's all us lot talking about it. But do you think things are changing or, or do you think it's the same? I, I do. And I think, um, like, I think people are recognizing now the kind of you know we both trained with Jolene you know the gray area of drinking that you know things aren't necessarily black and white I think that message is kind of starting to pervade down to people and certainly clients coming to me you know they are people that are questioning their drinking in that stage where it's just like I know this isn't going well you know I'm not like drinking you know a liter of vodka a day you know sometimes I mean I had a client who drank very rarely um, but every time she drank she drank to excess and she just didn't feel good you know so I think a lot of people that sort of health message is starting to to shift things and definitely you know the I mean Club Soda have done amazing work and just the the industry the sense of I mean I went to Spain recently everywhere had non-alcoholic beer in France, it's still quite far behind, but and in England, it's amazing, like, you know, the, the menus and stuff. So I do think there's been a real shift in that kind of inclusion. Um, I think the areas which still need quite a lot of work, and it's something that I'm quite interested in, is, well, trauma awareness, right? So within the workplace, within kind of therapeutic senses, because, um, you know, um, the sort of alcohol unit and the the sort of um mental health units they don't necessarily talk to each other and they don't put the link together with trauma um so you know and still within therapy there's still a lot of therapy therapists which will be like oh you know a glass of wine is is okay so i think those levels still need quite a lot of education um and i do think that young people are drinking less um yeah, I do. I mean, it's definitely shifted in the last one. I mean, I've been, yeah, sort of trying to get sober, then sober for 10 years and it's shifted enormously. And I and I think the conversations around anxiety and alcohol, that's starting to be yeah. something. The, the and menopause. Side, and, yeah, menopause, yeah. you know, disordered eating. Yeah. You know, I've covered all these subjects on my podcast and it's really important. Mm. Um but I also think it needs to be improved in the workplace, right? Because 100%. I, I'm, I'm doing a talk for a well-known bank soon, right? And more than twice I've heard there's not an issue with alcohol in the workplace, right? And and you get every single person in the mental health arena talking about um, anxiety, PTSD, war veterans in. Like every single section, you start talking about drinking, no, no. It's it's like the the silent victim, do you know what I mean? And yeah. I, I that needs to change. And there are people in our circles that are doing amazing work with that. And that's where I really want to start pushing that and going, like, look, it is a you know, productivity. What what are you like on a Monday morning if you've had a binge at the weekend? Friday afternoon if it's someone's birthday and you're down the pub, you know. Like midweek drinking where you've actually had Monday and Tuesday off and you reward yourself because you feel like you've been really good and you have a binge on a Wednesday. There's so many <laughs> things, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, 
the pervades of burnout. I mean, it's like there's yeah. a real crisis with people within the workplace and burnout. And it's like it's shifting it, isn't it, to say, well, you know, we're not talking about the problem. We're talking about the solution. So what can you do? Yeah. Right, this is this one thing that you can take out that actually might have a really huge impact in how you feel and how you can, you know, get up in the morning, how you can perform at your job, how you can show up for your kids. Mm. You know, it's it. Yeah, it's about sort of seeing it as a, a solution. And I do think that's starting to happen. But you're absolutely right within the workplaces. Um, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of lip service around mental health. Um, but apart from that, it's it's still very much the lubricant of, you know, um, mm. the working relationship. 100%. I heard someone the other day said that um, his job was on the line because he doesn't drink anymore and it's part of the social networking, you know. And and someone else that also said that he's an outcast in the office because he doesn't drink. So when they go down the pub Friday, the people down the pub are more likely to get the promotion because they're one of the lads or yeah. one of the gang. Do you know what I mean? And then and the person who's not drinking is maybe having a sandwich and working through being really productive yeah <laughs> and then yeah. the others come back a lot of these places have like their fridges full of booze and whatever and it just there's so much awareness in that in that field that needs to be looked at i think um yeah. so you've written two books as well which are amazing i've got both do you want to tell people about them uh yeah so the first one um is called Love Yourself Sober. And we wrote that um, very much through the lens of, you know, caregivers and mums, you know, because as I said, you know, Kate and I, who I did the podcast with, which is called Love Sober, um, Kate still runs Love Sober and it's a brilliant um, community for women. And, you know, there's lots of courses that she runs as well. Um, It was kind of looking at it through our own experiences and, you know, the the caregiver lens you know and looking at stress looking at um what happens the marketing you know all of those things that that led us to where we were and then the solutions both of us are coaches so there's a lot a lot of kind of coaching exercises through that um and the second one is called love your sober year um and we wrote that one and it was published last september um and that one is all around we took kind of seasonal self-care as the sort of inspiration. So there's um, it goes throughout the year. So every week you have a, a different chapter and you have kind of journaling questions. And it really looks at kind of sustainable sobriety and, yeah, recognizing our energy levels and how they shift, recognizing kind of seasonally, um, you know, that spring can be an area where you want to sort of plant good ideas and you want to kind of nurture them and and let them grow. Whereas in winter, you know, it is a time just to rest and let things settle. So using that kind of natural uh, relationship we have to, um, yeah, to help support our sobriety. So it's beautiful. It's illustrated and it's got loads of journaling questions and we wanted it to feel like a gift, something that people can kind of keep, refer back to. Um, yeah work through yeah so it's a it's a lovely lovely book and i've always got mad about the cover it's fantastic yeah. i think you know try and change the other cover as well yeah. <laughs> yeah. but no these are really fascinating things right because there's a lot of quickly out there uh when i wrote my book i tried to do it differently and people quite often comment that it's different mm. um and and it adds to your resources doesn't it with with your podcast my podcast these different books you know, I recommend um, a book called Dopamine Nation as well. Because Amazing it, book. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Atomic Habits, you know, all, mm. all these different books that can hit it from different angles because it's not all about just giving up drinking. There's so yeah. many layers to it. And, of course, the wonderful Gabor Marte that um, talks about trauma. And there's big T's, little T's, you know. It could be that you weren't loved enough as a child like if you're a highly sensitive child that I was my mum or dad never hugged me or told me they were proud of me or they loved me for a child growing up that can feel quite traumatic in a way you know and it goes on into your confidence and self-worth self-esteem when you're older and then you drink to give yourself confidence and then you're accepted as part of the crowd and then you go on to people please because you know what you're gonna get yeah do you know yeah. what I mean? And it was like the tapestry of it all, joining the dots up. 
you can really formulate the picture of why we drank. Plus, as you've discussed, all, all the um, Ladek culture, the advertising, it's a real cooking pot of ingredients, isn't it? That it's not just, oh, well, I'll drink too much and I've got to stop. And and this is the fascinating thing about your second book because you, it's about later on. And I know mm. Catherine Gray wrote um, a book as well. Yeah, but it's four years in, isn't it? And, yeah. And, and it's, you know, how, how have you changed in that sick? Can you look back now at the first year and, and think, God, I was so, because we all evolved, don't we? But when we stopped drinking after years and years and years, you recreate yourself, don't you? You become actually your authentic self that you didn't know was really there. Yeah. And, um, and it's interesting what you're saying about kind of the, you know, looking at different books and stuff like that, because it is a journey of self-discovery. It really is, you know, and, and you need different things at different times. You know, we were talking about narcissism before we started. It's like, oh, hang on, something I didn't understand that. What is that? And looking into it. And then it's like people pleasing, you know, people pleasing is actually, you know, through the trauma lens, there's fawning, which is actually, you know, a way that we survive you know there's fight flight freeze fawning which is something that I didn't know about you know and so actually right this is something a a survival technique to you know try and make sure that everyone else is okay just you know no matter how it feels for you or codependency it was like oh my god here's another thing that I need to discuss and kind of look into um I think the main shift really and I think this is where people perhaps need support and where coaching can be really helpful is that you know at the beginning it's that kind of move away from goal isn't it it's like I need to stop this behavior this behavior makes me feel bad like it's I'm not showing up how I want to I need to stop it and at some point you need to shift into kind of move towards goals so it's like what does this look like what do I want you know how can this develop my life how can I feel better where am I going where's my meaning and purpose you know what matters most to me Um, And those are the things like over time that become those sustainable tools of sobriety, because it's not about not doing something. It's about who I am as a human being. You know, something my sobriety is part of who I am. You know, it's something I'm proud of. It's something that's important to me. It's something I create space for. You know, it's something that everybody knows about, you know, and something. Yeah, ultimately, I'm really proud of. And that's where that sustainability comes from, because it becomes something that is part of what means the most to you. Mm. Um, so, yeah, how have I changed? I mean, yeah, it's still still growing, yeah. <laughs> still figuring things out. Um, but definitely, I mean, when I'm my drinking was really bad, I, I couldn't even look in the mirror like I hadn't. I didn't I didn't like myself. I didn't have any confidence. I yeah, I had no relationship with myself. And that's definitely shifted. You know, I have my own back. I tried to do the best for myself. Um, I put myself in the picture. Yeah, which which feels amazing. I mean, uh, I I attended a, a day course a few weeks ago, Human Givens, which mm. were amazing. And um, the running thing there is it's that we don't meet our own emotional needs, which yeah. I can really identify to that lack of self-worth. Yeah. What does that look like? You know, self-sabotage. Um, I couldn't even look at myself. in a, If I saw my reflection in a window of a shop, it, I used to look away with disgust. It's like, yeah. who have you become? Who are you? And now I'm proud of the person I've become. And I say that without conceit. I, I genuinely yeah. am proud of myself and, and I like myself and I show up every single day and I'm authentic. And, you know, like all these things that I didn't even think of before. It's like I thought I was this, this lovable rogue, this character who would burst in the pub doors at midday and they would go, Galaxy! Because they knew that I'd buy more rounds than them. Yeah. You know? And moving away from that, it's realised actually, my God, that seems uh, four and a half years ago, but it seems like a lifetime ago now, how much self-development I've done in that time and, you know, meeting wonderful people like yourself and actually doing incredible talks like we are at Latitude, you know? I'd have never, ever 
dreamt of that five years ago. You know, yeah. it would have been um, a speech at a best man, a best band speech. You know, drunk, yeah, telling some terrible things. You know, so it's wonderful. Yeah, and you know, going so yeah, we are speak. Uh, I'm organising some panels at Latitude, and Dave will be there on the Friday, so Friday the twenty first, I think. It yeah, is. I believe so. Um, and again, it's the kind of ripple effect. So that all started was because I was going to Latitude with the kids um, last year, and I so I wrote to them and I said, you know, what are your provisions for alcohol-free people? You know, I was just being a bit like, you know, yeah. <laughs> flexing the muscle. Um, and that got passed on to someone who runs the, you know, mind, body and Zen area. And they said, oh, wow, it's really interesting. Actually, you know, I'm sober, too. Um, this is something, you know, we had a, a champagne bar in our area last year, felt, you know, that like there's something wrong there. I'd love you to come and do a talk. So that sort of started as that. So I did. I organized some talks last year. Um and actually, through those conversations, it's filtered back to the organisations, and they really took it on. And it they have a full alcohol-free bar this year, and every single bar on site has alcohol-free options. That's so fantastic. it's like, isn't that amazing? That's just through, like, you know, just through one little, yeah, just through one sort of. Um, and that's something that really excited me because I was a rebel and I did, you know, and, you know, I went to free parties and I was like this kind of I had this narrative of like being the like, yeah, kind of out there kind of um, hedonistic person and kind of filtering that through into activism as a sober person was really useful for me. It was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to take that actually and I'm going to question these things and go, you know, actually, is this OK that? you know, you're targeting to mums. And if you look at postnatal depression, they are incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. You know, is is this this is this okay? And that really fired my belly, you know, within my sober journey, just to be like, actually, I'm going to use all of that kind of, you know, F you to society yeah, and definitely. stuff to actually sort of push that into sort of, yeah, demanding change or just kind of asking these questions. And as you say, within the workplace, mm. you know, I think, all of those things help you as an individual to take on your sobriety to mean something to you as 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 you not just something you do but who you are um, yeah. which is you know and, and become accountable to yourself and and you know your morals and you know like I love this and I I'm really grateful you've asked me along to this as well because uh I was saying to someone the other day, oh, do you know what? I'm, I'm done with talking about it. <laughs> and then this coming up, well, maybe I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's within the, again, it's about, I mean, I feel the same, but it's about um, things that feel good, right? And, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and it's really brilliant when you can just enter a new space. And I think that's something that I feel now, kind of where I am with my kind of coaching and, and what I want to put out into the world. It's like, well, how can I, I took a job recently, um, you know, and I'm working within kind of um, organizational coaching. And I, I was really sort of like, um, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, I'm not uh, like attached to my sobriety, my sober coaching? Does that mean, you know, very, as we do go into black and white thinking, I can't do both, yeah. you know, am I not showing up for myself? And I like to sort of say, you know, what's the rainbow in between, you know, because there is between there's always interesting stuff in the middle. Um, and actually, I'm now going on calls and I'm proud to be a sober person. So when we're talking about habit, I'll say, yeah, you know, I don't drink. I've been sober for six years. I'm talking to people that would never have access to these conversations. Yeah. And actually, that feels pretty badass and like, you know, really great that actually i'm moving out of just our the sober bubble and actually yeah. owning my sobriety no matter where i am in the world like it wasn't easy the first time i said it i had a massive vulnerability hangover yeah. i was like oh my god does that mean they won't want to work with me because you know i'm sober and i've written these books and you know luckily i have an amazing boss was just like mandy that's who you are and you have such a wealth of experience to these people you know and again someone within the workplace came and she had you know a huge amount of trauma um you know and how wonderful that I can be in those spaces and still 
you know know all of these things if and when they're needed um so yeah it's exciting i'm really excited about latitude it'll be great so and you'll I. be there with johnny as well yeah so. you know we've just come back from morocco and we're planning to go to nepal actually you mentioned that um, yeah. earlier so we're doing that at the end of september <laughs> it's slightly longer track than i 15 did. days <laughs> yeah and uh, we got a little tiny group chat and, and he was saying about his obsession with bags and coats. So he's been sending links to all this trekking stuff. Do you know what I mean? That's a bit different from the old days. It'd be um, <laughs> yeah. a discount on cases of lager or something. But yeah. Mandy, thank you so much for joining me. Your books are called Love Yourself Sober and Love Your Sober Year. And where can people order these? Oh, any anywhere that you get your books. There, oh, yeah. Any bookshop online. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. You've been absolutely brilliant. And I'll see you at Latitude. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Take care. Everybody. Bye. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.